0: When you visit a refugee camp full of Muslims, you don't expect to get into a lot of conversations about pigs. But that's what happened to me. This was about a month ago. I barely been in the refugee camp a few hours before people started telling me stories. No, we've,
1: seen, we've seen the pig with our own eyes. We've seen the boar. We've taken pictures of it, videos of it. We've taken a selfie of it, with it. The yeah.
0: psalm and forehead are 19. That's an interpreter, by the way, speaking English. This is a refugee camp in Greece called Ritsona, about an hour from Athens. It was thrown together in March by the government on an old Air Force base. Very quickly, they set up tents for 700 people, brought in a few dozen porta-potties, designated an old helicopter pad as the soccer field. But it's in the middle of the woods, so snakes get in the tents, and at night, wild boars do roam around. Everybody's attitude about the boars was like, seriously? We escaped a war? Risk dying on these tiny boats? now, we come here, and this? (laughs) It is this
1: huge board, basically as big as we are. It's this big.
0: Okay, so this is a video. Oh, look, there it is. (laughs) The boys especially hang out near the toilets, and they are really big and frightening, and some people just hold it in all night rather than go. Other people are taking action.
2: Over there, you see, this is a handmade trap.
0: Mimi Karmiri was the field coordinator running the camp, and she walked me out in the woods with one of the refugees, Abu Khair, to show me the trap that he'd built to catch the boars. It wasn't what I pictured. So, <laughs> and what is it, a dumpster?
2: Yes, it's a dumpster. And, so, and he has put a piece of meat inside in order to attract the animals.
0: The dumpster is turned on its side, and the lid was propped open with a log, so a boar could just walk right in.
3: This open. That's food to animals.
0: here grabs the lid. If animals catch food, this glows. So, so basically the lid closes and then the log comes down and holds it shut. Yeah. And this, He claps his hands. I didn't say anything, but it did not seem at all clear that that lid was going to stay on with an angry 200-pound pig inside. Before I got to Greece, I knew that there were lots of refugees there, fleeing violence from Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan, just like everybody had seen those photos last year of people landing in Greece by boat on their way to Germany and other European countries. Then this year, in March, one of the European nations said basically, we're not taking you. You have to stay in Greece to all these refugees. Suddenly, the poorest country in Western Europe had to figure out how to house and feed and care for all these people, about 57,000 of them, stuck. And Greece was really not prepared. Its government was limping along after six years of austerity measures, which means, if you haven't been following this, there have been several waves of cutbacks in government services. A fourth of the country is out of work. The government quickly ad hoced its way into housing for tens of thousands of people. And as a result, you have this camp in the woods with wild boars. And, 130 miles away on the coast, some Syrian refugees were living in an abandoned beach resort on the Ionian Sea. Kids play in the sand. Modestly dressed women in long sleeves, long pants, and headscarves walk straight into the surf. Elsewhere around the country, if you want to come with me right now on a quick tour, around 1,300 Iraqis are housed on the grounds of a former psychiatric hospital near Mount Olympus. Down in Athens, 2,000 people are in two stadiums, baseball and field hockey, left over from the 2004 Olympic Games. Somebody has spray-painted a sign outside that says, in English, with arrows, Hockey, baseball, refugees. Next door to the stadiums, a 1,000 people are living in an old international airport that closed back in 2001. There are departure boards listing flights to Paris and Berlin with specific times and gates when it was still a functioning airport. And right nearby, people sleeping in tents who weren't going anywhere. Meanwhile, up north, near the Macedonian border... My colleague, This American Life producer, Sean Cole, visited a highway rest stop that is pretty much exactly like any rest stop you would find on, like, the New Jersey Turnpike or I-80 driving to Chicago. Inside, there's a convenience store with Pringles and Oreos and sodas. And then outside, where the gas pumps are, were pup tents with 2,000 people living in them, music playing. People sat around the gas pumps chatting and smoking right there, which, you know, probably not the best idea. A eight year old boy walked up to Sean and his interpreter, Manaf, with a request. Um, Yes, I would like to take your passport.
3: (laughs) (laughs) To go to Germany. So you would
0: pose as me? Uh, I would get the same haircut. (laughs) I
4: think they would still be able to tell the
3: difference. Would you make a passport for me then? I could maybe draw one. (laughs) What do you think about this
0: place? It's not
5: beautiful.
0: This gas station camp, by the way, was not an official refugee camp set up by the state. In fact, just a few days after Sean was there, the government relocated everybody to authorize camps. To give you a sense of just how seat-of-the-pants the Greek response to the refugee crisis has been... I talked to this guy who managed a camp of about 2,000 refugees when he was there. His name is Sakis Papathemelis. He's a civil servant who chooses his words thoughtfully and who, by the way, has seen his own salary cut in half over the last four years. NPR's reporter in Greece, Joanna Kakissis, introduced me to him. She guided, actually, a lot of the reporting that we did around Greece. Sakis told Joanna and me that even trying to do something straightforward in the camp that he managed, like, for example, arrange for trash pickup he would run into an incredibly basic problem. With
6: the trash, for example, I couldn't organize the trash being picked up because legally the camp didn't exist. The camp just wasn't there on paper.
0: Got that? The camps were created so quickly that nobody made them into any kind of legal entity. They weren't a business, they weren't a government agency. So they didn't have the power to actually sign any kind of contract with anyone to do anything.
3: Um, And
6: everything had to be done with a handshake. Okay, you want to help me? Come over here and help
3: me. He's
0: saying
6: the municipalities helped
0: a lot. He said that in the end, the city of Thessaloniki agreed to pick up his trash. And they paid for it too, just because he needed the help. And then he had to work around this same exact frustrating problem to get anything done, to get food brought in, to install proper sewage, to purchase showers and toilets, just anything. He couldn't make a legal agreement. He had to go off the books. Four of us from our staff traveled to Greece. We were joined by Joanna, who's been reporting on this and breaking stories on the refugee crisis for two years now. We're interested in how the Greek government was dealing with the refugees, but honestly, we also wanted to know what it was like for all these people who, you know, they thought they were heading somewhere else in Europe, and now they were stuck in these camps, in this weird kind of limbo, where they're just waiting for some country to let them in and they can restart their lives. It's just a strange place to find yourself. Outside the old international airport by a hot dog stand, just across the highway from the beach, which is there also, Marzia and her husband, Jamal, and their three kids are living in a little tent. It's really hot. And every day, a fancy green convertible Saab parks outside their tent. And every day, Marzia goes and sits in the shade of that car to cool herself off. She's saying, sometimes I get so crazy. I'm tired of the sun, of this place, of everything. And she says, the hotter it gets, the more she loses it which
5: means
0: (laughs) pretty much every day she loses it. She and her husband, Jamal, talked to another This American Life producer, Miki Meek. They're ethnic Hazaras who are discriminated against in Afghanistan, where they're from, and also targeted by the Taliban. So they moved to Iran for a while, where they have no rights at all, couldn't even put their kids in school. And then they ended up here five months ago, where Jamal is getting used to his wife, basically freaking out every single day telling him they need to give up
3: and go back
7: today my wife was just crying that I'm, I had it I'm, you got to make a decision either we go back or we move, move forward and I explained to her look my dear we can't go back because there is nothing to go back to and moving forward is no longer in my hands the border is closed so then I said darling, let's go to the beach and perhaps that will help you like, just calm down for a moment. And it did.
4: Are you worried that that move might stop working
3: eventually? Let's go to the beach. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah,
7: but I'm thinking about it, you know, this is another worry for me. So if, if this doesn't work, I'll find another way to please
0: her and make her happy. From WBC Chicago, it's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Today on our program, we have stories of people on the run who get stuck in this place. They do not want to be what that's like. Stay with us. Aquan Field of Interrupted Dreams. So one good place to see how the Greeks' ad hoc response is working is at the baseball stadium in Athens. About a fourth of the refugees in Greece are from Afghanistan, and about a thousand of them were brought into this abandoned stadium that was left over from the Olympics. The infield was all dirt. One of our producers, Miki, went there.
4: Here's how you turn a baseball stadium into a refugee camp. Out in the dirt of the infield and the outfield, you set up 150 white tents. They're standard issue from the U.N. At the concession stand, give out rations. Right behind home plate, there's a press box. Make that the office. For bathrooms, use the locker rooms behind the dugouts. There's one for men and one for women. The women's is way cleaner. We're walking into the women's area.
5: Men are very organized. They have a list. They clean their bathroom twice a day. <laughs> the Men are not that organized. We have to drag them to clean their bathroom. One of the
4: camp's managers, Anna Agratelli, is giving me a tour. She has big brown hair pulled into a ponytail. She's Creek. So we're just walking into the, the locker room. And uh, the floors are, are a little flooded. So we're just walking through a pool of water. <laughs> All the lockers and benches have been ripped out. And over in the showers, women are squatting with buckets full of water and clothing. Love showers.
5: And now they do the um, clothes.
4: The laundry, doing laundry now. So I mean, does this just get flooded just from the from the people doing their laundry? The laundry, yes. Okay. I counted 12 toilets. Only six were working. This was for 300 women and about 200 girls.
5: Did you ever go to a baseball game during the Olympics? No. We are not big fans of baseball in Greece. (laughs) We don't even know baseball.
4: Most of the refugees stay out of their tents during the day because they're too hot. They're totally exposed on the field, no shade. Temperatures right now reach into the 90s, so lots of people hang out in the upper levels of the stadium seats because they're partially covered by an overhanging roof. They also crowd around any electrical outlet they can find, to charge phones or plug in electric teapots. The Olympics were held here. I keep thinking that. Anna is in charge of everything in the stadium. Everything. A woman who didn't get shampoo when they handed it out. The broken toilets. The day I was there, they didn't have enough drinking water and baby formula to get through the coming week. She takes me over to home base, where they built a prototype cover for the tents. These giant pieces of green sheer fabric stretched over a tent to try and cool it down in the sun.
5: It's a sample, see if it works. But we don't like it and we're going to change it. So is, is it not working well or what do you guys no, think? it's very, very bad. And if you put like 150 of those, uh, then I'm not going to see the people. She needs to see the people,
4: in case there's a fight or some other disturbance. It's happened. This is Anna's third month on the job. Before this, she worked as a production assistant at a theater company. Is there anything that you learned in that job that's useful in this job?
5: No. <laughs> but maybe the production, the crazy hours that you work in uh, the production, that's the same. <laughs> and that you have to use uh, the solution for every crazy thing. situation yes. that
4: comes up, you have to like, work on the fly. Yeah.
5: Um, and how old are you? A
4: 30. She's actually older than a lot of her co-workers. It's mostly women working at the camp. Anna's boss is 25. 25 years old and overseeing the biggest camp in Athens, working out of a concession stand that probably sold hot dogs.
5: So why is it that
4: mostly, it's mostly very young women that are working here and managing this camp?
5: Because this job is very hard and only women can do. <laughs> is that your official or unofficial answer? No, no it's the unofficial answer. Uh, you need to have a lot of power, a lot of hours. You have to be tireless. Yes. At several of these camps we
4: went to around Greece... The young women running them began as volunteers when the crisis started. Then they took charge. They work long hours. They don't really take days off. And they set a tone at the camps. The government doesn't want the camps to feel like prisons. People can come and go. And having these young women in charge helps with that. They don't act like guards or bosses. They are just badasses and sweethearts. Anna and the other woman who runs the stadium are constantly making these little jokes and laughing with everyone. Every few steps on our tour, Anna got stopped.
5: Salam, so, um, Name.
4: Saha. Do you get hugs a lot? Yes. <laughs> how, how many times a day do you think you get hugged?
5: Ah, uh, too many. Too many, too many.
4: Well, I guess there's worse things people can do than hug you, right?
5: Yes, yes. They hug you. <laughs> the rocks at me. <laughs> no, they're all very polite. And men, they're very polite. And very protective.
4: Like when she walks to the bus stop on the highway late at night. Five or six men always walk out with her to make sure she's safe. They won't leave until they see her board the bus.
5: Okay, uh, okay, you
4: In the span of 15 minutes, okay. I watched Anna comfort a woman who came to her to say that she was feeling suicidal. Her husband was ignoring her. Anna then went to find help for a guy who kept fainting.
5: My friend, wait here, don't go without seeing the doctor. Come after the to the office, tell me what happened. Okay?
4: Moments later, a boy ran up to her to say that he was hungry, that he didn't get lunch.
5: No, no, you got food. No, my friend, no. But I but I saw you. But I saw you.
4: She'd seen him grab food from the kitchen earlier in the day, she told me. Because she can't speak Dari, Anna mostly communicates through a combination of broken English, hand gestures, and Animal noises. That's Anna making cat sounds. That's the pig, her favorite. I watch Anna wink her way down crowded hallways, winking as she hands out juice boxes to kids, winking in the middle of conversations with adults. You always make a little pig I
5: don't know why I do it. It's like
4: a tick. She says it's like a tick. Given Anna's personality, the hardest part of her job might be obvious. It's saying no.
5: Like every two, three days, I will have a, a breakdown because. Uh, the no's that I say, there are a lot. You say a lot of no's. Yes. And when I say. To somebody, no, I feel very bad because uh, at my personal life, I never used to say no. You no. I'm not good at saying no either. Yes. It's hard. It's uh, Come and work here. You'll, you'll get used to it in a month. What are people always asking you for? Shoes. <laughs> is it shoes? Yes, shoes is the most uh, asked thing here. I want shoes now.
4: <laughs> what do you say?
5: You have to wait. <laughs> so
4: she says they've already given out sneakers twice in the past three months to everyone. But every day, she says, she gets this request over and over, mostly from young men. As if on cue, two guys, most likely in their 20s, show up.
5: <laughs>
4: Anna tells them no. And I guess she's had so much practice with this one, as you heard, she doesn't even hesitate. Anna moves on. But it's a puzzle to her. Why the constant need for more shoes? Later, I'm wandering around the tents in the ball field with my interpreter. And we're talking to a guy who lives near third base. And we accidentally discover the answer. His name's Habib. Habib He's Habib. 45. He's Afghan like most everyone in the stadium. He tells me back home in Kabul. He was a shoemaker. So I have to ask. So I was talking to the camp manager and she said, the number one thing people ask for here is shoes. Why?
3: <laughs> I can tell you the
7: reason why Afghans... <laughs> There, is.
4: there are two reasons, actually. One is, they don't wear shoes in their tents. And sneakers are a pain to take on and off if you have to fuss with the laces. So they smash down the backs of the shoes and wear them like slippers. The second reason is, and here, Habib started making a kicking motion with his feet.
3: <laughs>
7: the reason is because Afghans love to play soccer.
4: The younger guys destroyed their shoes so fast because they're always playing soccer at a field nearby. That's it. Not much of a mystery after all. Habib says there's not much for people to do at the camp, and soccer helps them break up the boredom.
7: So it's like this, you wake up in the morning, we look at each other. There's nothing. Then we go and have breakfast, then we come back and sit and look at each other. There's nothing else. We used to have some playing cards, and then somebody stole it. So we try to listen to some music on on the cell phones, and then we look at each other again, and then it's afternoon, then we go and have some. Uh, we have lunch, and then we come back and sit here, and then look at each other again. Then we just fall asleep. We take a long nap until 6 p.m., and then at 6 p.m. we go and play some soccer. And then we come back here, have dinner, and then we look at each other again, and then we fall asleep.
4: So you're pretty sick of looking at each other now.
3: You know,
7: the the thing is like, you have to understand today you guys came here and we talked and I don't know even the time how it passed but in normal days, in regular days one hour to us passes like one whole year of boredom.
4: There's a pretty nice public beach that's only a 15 minute walk from the stadium. Habib says he takes his kids there a few times a week but never on weekends.
7: Oh, not on Saturdays and Sundays because it's the Greeks' holidays and
4: we want them to
7: enjoy the beach themselves.
4: He wanted them to have the beach to themselves? Really? I asked him if that was it, or was it that he just felt uncomfortable among the Greeks? Is there any part that you wouldn't go to the beach because maybe you would feel like you may not be wanted there?
3: uh,
7: They're very nice people. I don't feel uncomfortable. Uh, But when it comes to the beach situation, um, it's like, okay, so we heard that the Greeks had complained that there are a lot of, like, Afghans coming to the beach, and it was getting too crowded for them. So we came here, we talked with each other, and we decided... We don't want the Greeks to feel like have a bad memory of us. So we decided on, on Saturdays and Sundays, we want them to go and enjoy themselves. Uh, and we don't want them to feel like, uh, uh, you know, we're there to, you know, take their space.
4: About 3,000 people live in this complex, which includes this stadium, a field hockey stadium next door, and an old airport out front. And everyone I talked to knew this rule. Let the Greeks have the beach on the weekend. Most of the Afghans have very little sense of what's going on outside the camp. There's no Wi-Fi here. They're barely getting news from outside. And I didn't meet anyone who spoke Greek. They're living in a bubble, a baseball field-shaped bubble. So rumors go crazy. Most of them have to do with when and how or if they will get out of Greece. Here's a few of them. Angela Merkel, the German chancellor, is personally coming to the stadium to rescue them. John Kerry is bringing a plane. The Canadians are sending a ship. And the most common, Macedonia is going to reopen its borders again to Afghans.
7: Literally, like we would hear, the border has reopened. They've thrown a party, started dancing, clapping, cheering, hugging each other, congratulating each other. And then some people have literally left overnight to go to the border. And then in the morning we hear it was just a rumor.
4: When was the last time that there was like a party because people believe the border was opening?
7: The biggest one was about a month ago, but also about two weeks ago.
4: How long does it take for a rumor to spread through a camp, this camp?
7: Yeah, some people have, they have nothing to do except going around talking to each other, so it spreads within minutes. And believing in him, thinking they might be right, actually makes you happy for a couple of days.
4: In this stadium full of Afghans, One big piece of misinformation is about Syrians and how they're treated in Greece. In February, when the border closed to Afghans, Syrians were still being allowed through. Habib and his family watched Syrians cross over. Violent fights broke out that day between the two groups and have continued ever since. It's one of the reasons why the Greek government segregates most of its camps by nationality. So there are no Syrians in the stadium, which Habib explains this way.
7: Look, Syrians are getting to stay in very nice hotels. Everybody cares about them. And they are uh, issued visa right here. And then they get to fly out of Greece. So if the border is closed, it doesn't matter to them. Are there Syrians in this camp? They're not in this camp. And they're. I don't think they're in any other camps. They're living in hotels. Last Friday,
4: I was in a camp. And that camp was all Syrian. Who are also stuck here. And I was wondering if you knew that these camps full of Syrians exist here in Greece.
7: I've heard that there are Syrians here, but uh, I haven't seen them here.
4: Do the majority of people here believe that Syrians are, are getting flown out in airplanes and putting.
7: Everybody believes here. Because, and it's not a rumor, actually. It's not. It's, they do fly Syrians out of here. You have to understand the difference between them and us, the Syrians and Afghans, is that for them, they have a hope.
4: Habib isn't exactly right about everything. But he's correct that there's a pecking order among the refugees. And Syrians are at the very top they get top priority on their asylum and relocation applications for the EU. And then underneath the Syrians is pretty much everyone else. Iraqis, Pakistanis, Iranians, and Afghans.
0: Nikki Meek. That too, the parents, trapped. So what's it like being a parent in this situation? Kids are everywhere in the camps. they are a third of the refugees. You see them running around, improvising stuff to play with. You'll be standing there, and a four-year-old will march by, purposefully dragging a blanket on a string, and you'll think, "Okay." The woman in charge of the Ritsona camp, the camp with the wild pigs, told me that it's the little kids who are doing better than anybody at the camps. And on the surface, watching them run around, they do seem good, like these five- and seven-year-old sisters.
6: Hey, hey, hey,
0: hey <laughs> Doing what? I can tell you from experience Any little kids do around a microphone Anywhere in the world
6: <laughs>
0: One girl goofs on the mic saying Bye uncle, over and over And her sister calls her crazy <laughs> So they seem fine, right? But scratch the surface a little And it's a different story That five-year-old? Her mom tells me she's still so traumatized by the Syrian war and what she's been through that when her mom wants to go to the bathroom, the little girl insists on coming in with her. She's always by her side. Lots of kids are still recovering. A guy named Yunus Salem told me about his five-year-old. Yunus was a second-year law student back in Syria, but in the camp, he's famous for being the guy that, when a snake gets into your tent, Yunus can catch it. If it's poisonous, he'll kill it. He's getting maybe one a day. I'll
1: get like a stick like a long stick and I'll just start to kind of like play with the snake and like I can show you a photo but once I can get the stick right on top of the snake's head I'll press down on it so the snake's head is against the ground and I'll just grab its head from behind see like in this picture right here
0: anyway, his daughters being at the camp of course is way better than living with constant bombs and shooting back in Syria a number of parents told me that the kids are sleeping better getting back to their old selves. They get to come and go as they please, which is too dangerous back home. They play with other kids. But Yunus says his daughters are not okay at all and not happy.
1: I have a daughter who has psychological problems. A rocket fell on our house and um, and my mom and my other daughter were killed.
3: The
0: house was destroyed. His five-year-old, the one in the camp, was three at the time. And since then...
3: And
1: she became afraid of the sounds of airplanes. And now they have us in an airbase. And now when a military jet passes over us, you know what? She starts to cry.
0: Has she made friends?
1: No, she doesn't she doesn't have any friends. I mean she never leaves the tent.
3: And
1: then this is a picture of my daughter, the one that died. Yeah.
0: The photo is shocking A cute three-year-old girl Lying in rubble Dust on her face and clothes It's hard to know what to say
1: So they're actually, they're twins The five-year-old So this is her twin that she died And she was three years old when she died Did she see this? Yes, she was, she was
3: uh, with them uh,
1: When it happened And this is our home
0: I know this isn't the point of his story at all, but this happened a bunch of times in the camps. Somebody would describe the most awful thing that could ever happen, and then they would pull out their cell phones, like, oh, here's a picture. Here's the bombed-out apartment that used to be our house. Here's an overloaded raft crossing from Turkey into Greece. That's my kids in the orange life jackets. I suppose if you visit war zones all the time, this is nothing new. And of course people use cell phones for this, to record the near-annihilation of their families. I would do it, too. But it was always jolting. The interview that I did that gave me the best picture of what it's like to be a parent in the camps and the particular ways that it has affected different members of a family to be here was an interview with a woman named Aziza Bashar. She's well-dressed, even here, with a stylish hijab, a red and navy plaid button-down jacket, and a streamlined navy skirt. It's like, what little she can control, she does. Her husband's also in the camp, though he waved me off when I tried to talk to him. She's the one who makes the decisions for the family, who marks them out of a war zone, Walking, and actually sometimes running, she said, to a town up north where things were safer. And then when things there became untenable, she moved them again to Kurdistan, where they lived for a while. And finally, they just decided to escape to Europe. They arrived in Greece by boat, thinking they were just passing through, just here for a few days. The child she worries about most of her kids is Mohammed. Hamad, they call him. He's nearly eight. When the war began, they were near Aleppo. Hamad was the child who reacted the worst to the bombing and the snipers and the shelling which were constant for days
2: sometimes. But the longest we were under siege for was eight days.
1: Meaning the fighting was going on day and night, nonstop.
0: Hamid was four. He was potty trained, but he started wetting the bed. And he hasn't stopped wetting the bed. Years later now. His siblings all play together, but he's always off on the side.
2: He doesn't interact. When I
1: took him to the doctor in Kurdistan, he told me he has developmental issues. They said your son is seven, but mentally he's four. He's stalled mentally. If you teach him anything, he doesn't remember it. If you ask him anything, he takes a long time to respond.
0: She says before the war, he was developing normally. And in fact, getting stuck developmentally like this is one way that some children respond to trauma. What's your name? Hamad. Hamad, what do you think of life here at the camp?
1: That's
2: his
0: mom prodding him.
2: Like
0: the other kids I met who were doing the worst, Hamid's big problem is fear. At first, when they got to the camp, it was the snakes and the wild animals that he feared the most. But the family worked really hard on that, and now he's okay with the snakes. Next, it was the airplanes, and that became a family project, and now he's not so scared of the planes. Though the one thing they haven't been able to fix is his dreams. He dreams of bombings and shellings. So, so how in the world did you get this fearful child onto a little raft from Turkey to Greece?
2: He saw on TV before we left Kurdistan. He used to see the
1: ocean in cartoons and say, Mom, the water has sharks in it. And before we left, he saw in his dreams that a shark came up, the same as the cartoons, and said, It's going to eat me, it's going to eat me, and
2: I'm going to die. I told
1: him it's just a story, it's just cartoons, don't be afraid. I told him this is something that's made up, it's not real. I
2: always
1: encouraged him. The ocean is really wonderful. It won't take long, just two hours. And then you can go to school, and we're going to have a nice house.
0: But then the first boat that they got on in February was kind of a disaster, and it really affected Hamid. There was supposed to be 35 people on a little rubber boat, but Aziza says that they packed on twice that many and didn't give out life vests. And people wanted to get off, and the smugglers pointed guns at them and said, you have to go now. A few people told me stories like that. They got a little ways out, and the boat started to deflate and started to flip over, just capsize. And people screamed. It was terrifying. No life vest, remember. And Aziza's got a 5-year-old and a 7-year-old and a 9-year-old with her. And the boat turned back. Okay, so after that, how in the world do you get your six kids onto a second boat? That requires some A-level parenting moves, and Aziza was the one who had to get her kids on board, literally on board in this case. And mainly, she painted a picture of the bright future they were going to have in Europe. And she pretended she knew that this new boat was going to be totally different. And they went again.
2: Uh. <laughs> Yeah, I was afraid. More for my kids than for myself.
1: Before we got on the boat, my son told me, you're the one who's deciding about our lives. Whether it's the beginning or the end. And those words really affected me.
0: When they got on the boat, she told Hamid, the seven-year-old, to sleep in her arms. He was so terrified, he conked out immediately. Missed the whole trip. Of course, here in the camp, her husband's with her too, and I asked, does he help with the children? She said he wasn't any help with that back in Syria, and here, he's totally useless. She tries to get him to handle things, but it's like he's the seventh child that she's taken care of.
2: It's had a toll on my mental health, seeing my kids and their dad. And
1: we argue a lot about the kids more than anything else. I tell him, you're not helping, you don't talk to the kids, you don't engage them. I always feel like you're detached.
2: He says there's no point talking to them. You talk
1: to them and what good has come of it?
0: Yes, a fight about money. He smokes. A pack or a pack and a half a day. And since they went on the run from Syria, she started smoking too to deal with the stress, though way less than him. And in secret, so her kids don't see.
2: And this is one reason we fight. We're
1: in a situation where we don't need these extra expenses.
0: They got on the boat to Greece with a thousand euros, which was enough for a few weeks on the road. Aziza laughed and said, I think we spent 950 of it on cigarettes.
2: <laughs> Yeah, I just have fifty euros left.
0: That Arabic expression she just used. My interpreter said that in this context, the best translation for it would be, "my wife." The other child that Aziza worries about the most is her 18-year-old Ali. He's a great kid in lots of ways—very sweet and encouraging with his little brother Hamid. Also, he's incredibly skilled at building things for the family.
2: This is all my son's work.
0: This is Ziza showing us around her sister-in-law's tent, and it was nuts. Every family was given a standard-issue tent, and they built an outer courtyard with a fence, and there's an overhang, so there's shade. And there's a table and benches and shelves made from wood that was scavenged from old shipping pallets. And then you go through a door and there's a kind of mudroom pantry with their food. And then another room with a bed for the kids and shelves with neatly folded children's clothes and a row of hooks for other clothes. And it's all super cheerful. Everything's covered with brightly colored fabric. And then there's another entry and it's the parents' bedroom with a full-size bed and night table. My interpreter, Barat later described it the best.
2: All I could
1: think of was, okay, so you know in Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire... When they all go to the Quidditch World Cup.
0: Oh, brass 23.
1: And then everybody has, like, tents. Everybody's staying in tents. But since they're magical tents, like, from the outside, they look like a regular, like, camping thing. But, like, when you go in, it's, like, so many different rooms. There's, like, a living room and there's, like, a kitchen. So literally walking into, like, when they opened the door, I swear to God, that's what it was like. It was insane. And in what they built. It's crazy.
0: Illegal construction from his uncle. But then his aunt says, the student became the master He builds so he doesn't get bored in the camp. But being in the camp has spurred this very good kid into all kinds of behavior he never had before. He started smoking secretly at first, but now he doesn't bother to hide it, which bothers Aziza. He talks back. He doesn't listen which is normal for an 18-year-old, but new for him.
2: It's like he doesn't care about what I think. I can't
1: tell him what to do anymore. He gets really upset with me because I promised him,
2: you'll finally be able to relax, you can go to school. You can get the education you were denied in Syria.
1: He keeps telling me, this is what you promised us. So this is our future? You made us take the sea and face death, and you brought us here to live like this?
0: She tells Ali, you can't blame me for what's out of my control. For whatever reason, this is the life that God fated us to live right now. But it's not forever. A lot of other people are going through the same thing. Ali says he knows that's true, but it is hard not to get mad. He's got expressive dark eyes and a scruffy beard that is more peach fuzz than actual beard.
5: Because she promised us, she promises that we'll have a better future in
3: Europe. And
5: now they're fixing the electricity here. That makes me think that we're staying more, and that's really depressing me.
0: In fact, just the week I was there, the camp got big outdoor lights and Wi-Fi and a proper water supply, which in a way was just upsetting. The Air Force colonel who put this camp together told me that they're building the place to last five years these or other refugees.
3: I always
5: tell her, like, what are we going to do here? It's obvious that we're going to stay here for a longer time now. What can I do? I'm doing nothing. I feel that my hands and my legs are just tied, and the days are passing and passing, and there is nothing. Because of depression and stress, I just think that I'm going to explode sometimes from the situation that I'm living in.
0: Mainly, he really, really wants to go to school. He hasn't been in four years. And his 16-year-old brother, Fetty, is feeling all the same resentments and frustrations he is. And their mom says sometimes the two boys will sleep till 2 in the afternoon. And she'll try to wake them, and they get upset with her. And they say, well, why should we get up? We don't have anything to do. We're no school. We'd rather not wake up and see where we live. We'd rather just sleep. Aziza says, being here in this weird, suspended animation where their lives aren't moving forward at all, where her boys feel like life is passing them by and they're never going to get to go to school and catch up to where they should be. She told me she is really just at the end of her rope. In Arabic, there's this saying she used, it's like your soul is tired, it's worn out. And she's questioning herself.
2: I've done everything I could. I got them here. But it's not in my control to do anything else.
1: I feel like we committed a crime, but I don't know what crime we did.
0: Sometimes during these conversations, it was hard not to think about how the rest of the world sees Aziza and her family. These are the most hated people in Europe, right? These are the refugees whose possible immigration was a big reason that Britain pulled out of the EU, whose existence has led to the rise of xenophobic parties from Germany to Denmark. These are the Muslims we talk about blocking from our own borders. Aziza says she can't go back. Her old house doesn't exist. Her whole family has left Syria. There's nothing for them there. Not long ago, Aziza was missing her own mother and feeling really sad about that. And her kids noticed and they told her, we're there for you, you know. And they said, if we could do anything to make you happy. And they tried to cheer her up and they made little jokes and little funny moves, which was really sweet. And she loved it. But they would try to take care of her the way that she tries to take care of them. At the same time, she felt like, oh, it's come to this, that they're taking care of her. It's like these days when she tells them they're still going to have a bright future. They just need to hold on. She sees them nod, like they're humoring her, pretending to agree just to make her feel better. That does not seem good to her, she said. That doesn't seem ideal at all. Coming up. So for your new life to begin, all you need is for somebody to pick up the phone when you call and you try. And try again, and try again, and they just do not answer. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. This American Life from Ira Glass. Today on our program, Are We There Yet? Stories of people whose lives are on hold in refugee camps in Greece. So an incredible team has put together an interactive tour of the camps that we visited with little movies and photos and three-dimensional architectural renderings created by a group of architects and engineers, Jay mexis and partners. Every time they show this to me, I just kind of stare at it in wonder. It's amazing. It's at our website, thisamericanlife.org. We've arrived at Act Three of our program, Act Three. All our representatives are currently busy. So the first step for any refugee to leave the refugee camp limbo that they're in, in Greece and get relocated elsewhere in Europe, is that they need official asylum papers from Greece. And the problem is, there are too many refugees for the government office that handles this to process quickly. And fearing a situation where just like hundreds of refugees would line up every day at their office door, the asylum office in Greece set up a way for people to make appointments for their interview and their paperwork. Basically, they set up a system where people could call the office on Skype. And just a word here, if you don't know what Skype is, it's like an internet phone call, like FaceTime. People have it on their phones. You can call without the video also. And the asylum office made a schedule of when people could call. So, for instance, people who speak Arabic got from 10 to noon on Mondays and 10 to 11 on Tuesdays some weeks. Dari and Farsi speakers got an hour Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And making the appointment is important because once you have the appointment, you get access to health care and you get a temporary permit to stay in Greece for a year. If you don't have that, they can arrest you. One of our reporters, Miki Meek, went to watch refugees make these Skype calls in Athens. This was six weeks ago. It turns out, when it comes to pre-registering for asylum, like the cops say on American TV shows, you can do it the easy way, or you can do it the hard way. Here's Meeky.
4: Tens of thousands of people were in this weird situation where their entire futures were dependent on getting through on a Skype call. And they were not getting through. So they redialed. Again and again, and again, people had been stuck doing this for months, from their cell phones.
7: I've been trying probably more than 500 times.
4: This is Hassan Heydadi, 22 years old and from Afghanistan. He told me he left after his parents got blown up by a roadside bomb, like they couldn't find remains to bury, like they were evaporated. And he got attacked by the Taliban. Hassan was sitting next to a guy who pulled out his phone, to show me a Skype history. His first call to the Greek asylum office was back in March. He's just scrolling through. How how many times have you tried to call? I mean, this is... He says almost a thousand times. It just says, call no answer, call no answer, call no answer, call failed. And it just keeps going on and on like this. So that's the hard way to do these Skype calls. The easy way, it really isn't much easier. You go to an NGO's office and you use their Skype account to call in. It's easier because your odds go up. The government asylum office prioritizes calls from NGOs over random Skype callers, which is why Hassan is at the rundown office of an NGO called the Greek Forum of Refugees. He's sitting cross-legged on the ground. It's Wednesday, and Dari speakers like him get an hour, from noon to one, to Skype the asylum office. Oh, so someone just coming over to help them start it. Let's see, what time is it right now? Time to go. All right, so they're trying. Hassan's sitting in front of an old laptop with a friend who brought him here, Awaz. And it's Awaz who grabs the mouse to reconnect. He says he came to this office over and over for weeks, 15 different times, before he finally got through. So he knows the drill. So now they're still trying. So let's see, like, let's count how many seconds. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And it dropped. I mean, did you spend, does this mean that you spent 15 hours of just letting it ringing and drop?
7: Yes, I would keep trying, keep trying, hoping that the Skype call will go through and then nothing will happen. Then after a while, you start to feel really
3: desperate. Hassan
4: says most every Afghan he knows has memorized the Skype schedule for the asylum office.
7: There are literally thousands of people trying at the same time right now. That's the sound of it dropping,
4: Redialing. Every time their call drops, they scramble for the mouse. It's like playing a very repetitious video game, an incredibly boring one, with very high stakes. 25 deadening minutes pass this way. And then, you guys just got through. The asylum office picks up. A woman speaks to Hassan through an interpreter. She can see him through the computer camera, but he can't see her. She tells him...
7: Sit sit back, straight.
4: Then she takes his photo and starts to put together his file. What's your name? She takes down all his bio information, then tells him to write down five numbers.
7: Please write down this code. 18572. That's your registration number.
4: Hassan's appointment at the asylum office would be in three weeks.
7: All right, thank you, bye. (laughs)
4: <laughs> I'm
7: very, very happy. I'm very happy.
4: Hassan jumps out of his chair and pumps his fist in the air. Awaz is smiling in disbelief.
7: It's like crazy that I've been coming here for 15 days. I cried, I so much, and he's so lucky. He just got it on the first day.
4: <laughs> Hassan reaches over and grabs Awaz by the chin. <laughs>
7: I feel like you know, my friend. I'm so. I I like this guy a lot I want to kiss him on the cheek and thank him for bringing me here and that just because of it it just worked out in the first day in the first call
4: I mean we should go for it just kiss him on the cheek Uh, he just patted his hat At 1 o'clock, the Afghans leave, and the Syrians arrive. There are so many more Syrian refugees in Greece that they get two hours, not one. And they occupy every available space outside the office door. Kids sleep on garbage bags their parents have placed on the floor. Men sit shoulder to shoulder in the stairwell. That's what the Skype app sounds like when a room full of people have it on speakerphone. A guy named Mohammed al Shehani holds his phone out to show me. Muhammad's 21 years old. He's from a bombed-out city in northern Syria,
5: called Idlib. That sound must
0: drive you crazy. I hear
1: it all the time. It's like ingrained in my brain, the Skype ringtone, over and over again.
0: I mean,
1: we hear it while we're sleeping. It just plays and plays, even in your dreams. But we're still hoping for the best, and God willing, we get through.
4: He's here at the office with his family, mom, dad, and siblings. There are eight of them in total. They're living in tents they've pitched on pavement at a cruise ship terminal. It takes an hour and a half to get here
0: I feel
1: like if we don't if nobody picks up today it's kind of like we're just we're just gonna be done we're not coming back because it's it's so hard for us to come we all have young kids and we have our wives with us and for, just for us to get here you have to take a train and then you walk 10 kilometers.
4: Muhammad's serious he's done with these Skype sessions which will not go down so well with his dad, Rajab. It's his dad who's made everyone start walking at 6 a.m., three times a week for the past three months. He wants to make sure they're first in line to use the laptop, because if they're not, they'll probably sit in the hallway the whole time and never get on. But all this has made things pretty tense. Here's Rajab. Because they're so tired of coming every day, you know? We
1: come and we go. We keep going back and forth. They're so tired. They're tired of it.
3: This is it, this
1: is all we do. That's it. I live my life based on these time slots.
4: Okay, so just it just dropped again. The theory in this office is that it takes so long to get through because there aren't that many operators answering the Skype calls. An NGO employee next to Rajab says it might be just one or two. He's been sitting in on these calls for months. I don't believe that could possibly be true. One or two people for all the thousands of Syrians needing asylum appointments? Then Joanna,
6: the NPR reporter we worked with on this show, went and visited the asylum office. It does sound incredible. The asylum office has over 350 employees. And this is the biggest thing they're working on. But it's true. The number of people manning the Skype line for all of Greece is exactly one. Her name is Katerina Maliotaki, lifetime civil servant, a big personality with black hair. She's dyed bright red. She keeps a stuffed Kermit the Frog doll next to her computer that she squeezes when she gets stressed. Hello, sir, how are you? Good morning, what country are you from? Great, thank you. Caterina sits in a tiny little office where she can barely move, with an interpreter that's right next to her. (laughs) I take one
5: call after another without leaving even half a minute gap
4: in between. Without taking a breath, my hand automatically grabs the
5: mouse. You can't
4: waste any time because,
6: as we know, there are tens of thousands of refugees. Everyone is waiting on you to answer the call, and you know that you can't possibly answer all of them. She picks up a call from a Syrian woman. She's in a little square on the right-hand side of the screen, wearing a peach headscarf. She tells her hello. Every time Katerina answers a call, she sits up straight and smiles even though the refugees can't see her from their end. She tells her to look at the camera. Bravo. Wonderful. Thank you. The entire time she's processing the woman and her kids, the left side of Caterina's screen is filling up with a long line of flashing calls. Katerina estimates an irregular workday, with calls in Farsi, Dari, French, Arabic, English. She'll only register about 100 people, maybe 12 an hour. That's the best she can do. So why is she the only one doing this job? Well, Greece is broke. The entire government has been on austerity for six years. There's no money to hire anyone else. And this agency is just three years old. It was never meant to handle such a big workload. The director told me they'd need to hire more than 1,000 people just to keep up. She said, sure, they could move more people to taking Skype calls. But that would just cut the number of people processing asylum applications. One way or another, it's going to be very, very slow. Katarina says sometimes refugees yell at her when she finally picks up their call. They want to know, why have I been calling for months? What, I mean, what's it like uh, knowing that thousands of people are trying to reach you and you can only pick up a few calls at a time?
2: It feels heavy and worrisome for us. Because you do as
4: much as you can, with all of your heart, your strength, your expertise. But whatever you do, even doing your best will always be just a drop in the ocean. So this big disappointment does come over us,
6: because no one is satisfied. Katharina told me she read a news article about a Syrian man who dreamed all night about Skype. She switches to English to explain.
5: He was saying that uh, every night he's dreaming. Uh, I'm trying to sleep and I see to my dreams that I'm calling on Skype. And really, I wanted to tell him that, oh, my friend, I have the same problem. (laughs)
3: Really.
4: So we're back at the NGO office. It's 355. The session ends at four. My interpreter and I are the only ones in the room who feel any suspense about whether the people here will get through. Rajab, the dad who dragged his whole family here, he just looks tired. He sits on a plastic lawn chair, staring at the computer screen. Hassan Muhammad, who told me if they don't get through today, he's never coming back. He's off in the waiting room, robotically redialing on Skype. <laughs> Two more, Three, two more minutes. One, two more minutes. Two more minutes. An NGO employee says to no one in particular. Moment of silence for the lost souls on Skype, about to die. Four. We haven't picked up. So time's up.
1: I mean, that's it. We're done for the day. Even
4: though it's still ringing, that's. I mean, it's, we're done. I leave the room to check in with Rajab's son, Mohammed, who's still out in the now-empty hallway.
3: The
1: entire time from 2 to 4, there's hope But everybody's still holding on, you know No one wants to go
4: But once that clock
1: strikes 4, that's when everybody leaves They literally, they hate everything They hate themselves, they hate this world They hate their kids, like they hate everything
4: Does your dad know that you're not going to come back?
3: No, no, he doesn't
4: He doesn't know I, I don't want to come back when are you going to tell your dad or are you going to tell him today or are you going to wait until he comes back for an appointment next week that you're not
5: coming? No, I'm not going to
4: tell him at all. Not going to show up next
5: week? Yeah. Yeah.
1: I can't keep coming back. I'm done. That's it. I just want to go back to Syria. I kind of... I just, want to, I just want to leave and smuggle myself back to Syria, honestly. I don't want to tell him.
4: He didn't go back to Syria. The next week he got up, started walking to the train station at 6 a.m. and came back to the office early enough to be first in line again.
0: Mickey Meek. So because those Skype calls have been criticized, in the time since Mickey recorded those people who were calling in, the United Nations Refugee Agency, UNHCR, has started going to camps with the Greek government to pre-register hundreds of people at a time in person so they don't have to use Skype. And they've done tons of people this way, over 25,000 people. But the problem is, these people were told when they do this, okay, you're pre-registered for asylum, but they weren't given an actual appointment. Like, they weren't given a date to come in and be interviewed and start the asylum process. An NGO staffer told us that the government tells the refugees that they'll be texted sometime in the coming year with a date. And then after that, the asylum process itself that they're just applying for, right, that itself can take months. But that's just the delay that all these people face with the local bureaucracy in Greece. The next problem they have is, although the rest of Europe has officially agreed to let in these 57,000 people into their countries, they're not doing it. Only 2,681 have been relocated out of 57,000. It's totally stalled. Apparently, the politics for any country to allow in refugees right now is too delicate to let these people in. Dimitris Vitsas who's in charge of coordinating the refugee crisis in Greece. He's the deputy minister of defense. He told me that Greece understands that these 57,000 people may not be going anywhere for a very long time. And when they finally do leave, given the situation in the world, others are probably going to show up to replace
3: them. Our goal is to have ready over 60,000 places where we can host refugees and migrants in central Greece
0: indefinitely moving forward for the coming years. Indefinitely. Now, short term, they hope to get two-thirds of the refugees, 40,000 people, out of tents and into little trailers that they call ISO boxes, which have AC and heat and proper kitchens and showers and bathrooms. They hope to do that by September, or anyway, before winter. They have money for this provided by the rest of Europe. The other, roughly 20,000
3: refugees? Our goal is to have 20,000 people in houses and apartments by the end of September.
0: This is not only better for the refugees than living in the camps, it's great for the Greeks, because it puts money into the hands of Greek citizens. Basically, other European countries will pay Greek property owners to fix up and rent out rooms and apartments and houses to the refugees. The Greeks are also hoping to set up schools for refugee children by the end of September. I did talk to officials from the International Rescue Committee and UNHCR, and they applauded these ambitions, but they were deeply skeptical that Greece would actually make the goals for such large numbers of refugees. But this whole plan, that Greece is preparing for tens of thousands of refugees to be there for a long, long time, the refugees don't know it. The people we met in the camps really had no idea. And they're trying to move ahead with parts of their lives, whatever they can. And, in fact, next week on our show, we have stories of people trying to do that, like this couple that met and fell in love, even though they were not expecting anything like that to happen to them while en route from one country to another. And even though her family did not approve and tried to keep them apart, the guy in the couple was undeterred.
7: I love her very much, and those people won't stand in our way.
0: Our love is stronger than this country that's blocking the border. That's next week on our programme. The is produced today by Miki Meek and Joanna Kakissis. Our production staff, Zoe Chase, Dana chivas Sean Cole, neil Drumming, Stephanie flu David Kestenbaum, Han Walt, Wallett, Jonathan McHivar, Robin Semy, and Alyssa Ship, Emmanuel Jochi, Iris Smith, Matt Tierney, and Nancy Updike. Our editors Joe Lovell. editorial help from Julie Snyder and Ellen Baker, our digital editor, Whitney Dangerfield. Research help today from Michelle Harris, Benjamin Phelan, and Christopher Switala. Original music for today's show by Marcus Thorne Begala. Other music helped today by Damien Gray from Rob Geddes. Our fixers in Greece, Pavlos Safiropoulos, Sophia Papadopoulou, and Amar Sakar. Our interpreters, Baraa Katiri, Manaf Abdul Ghani, and Rula Nasrallah. Translation help from Shafi Sharifi and Arash Afghati. Thanks also today to Yunus Mohammadi and Matteo Kumoleti from the Greek Forum of Refugees. Mirtola Luti, Christina Cristido, Tatiana Bella, Lucy Kerrigan, Katerina Kattidi, Victoria Bulubasis, Mimi Carmieri, Rich Oris, Tiffany Bartok. Our website, where you can see interactive maps of the camps we visited, at thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Troy Malatia, one of the great fundraisers in public radio. Everybody knows it. He just sits across the table from potential big donors, looks them in the eye, and says, No, no, no.
6: No, no, no. no.
0: I'm Eric Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life.